Hi, I'm Jonah Goldberg. I've been gone on vacation and I am back now. And uh, um, more about what I did for my winter vacation another time. Uh, we figured, I, I'll put it this way. I felt very fortunate that um, the first Dominion filing dropped right as I was about to leave town. <laughs> so I didn't have to talk about any of this stuff. And um, uh, and now the second one is filed and I have some clarity about whether I can speak about it. So to do that, uh, we figured Steve and I would just talk about this stuff since, you know, we sort of famously infamously or whatever left Fox not too long ago um, and figured we would just sort of talk about it and sort of fill you in on some things. So, Steve, welcome to Dispatch Live. We're going to be joined in a little bit by Kevin and David Drucker when we move on to the um the brilliant insights and rank punditry portion of this this conversation. Excellent. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. So, uh, Steve, I revealed on CNN tonight that uh, I was, in fact, subpoenaed by Dominion and I was deposed by Dominion. And it was one of the things that I had been cryptically alluding to on the, on, on the Remnant podcast for a while about the things that were occupying me that I couldn't talk about. Um, and so it kind of feels good to sort of be out in the open with it. Can't really talk about the details of what I, I said in the de deposition. Um, and I should just say, I don't think there are, there's a reason why my, my name doesn't show up in these filings, because what I had to say really wasn't all that important, but that's about all I can get into. Um, what are your emotions right now um, <laughs> on these, uh, on these filings? Well, I'll offer a, a similar, I guess, kind of disclosure. Um, so I too, uh, was subpoenaed. We fought the subpoena. Um, had a terrific lawyer, um, and we did not want to have to turn over um, any documents, anything else. Um, in part because so much of what I was texting and saying and emailing, in my view, I was doing in pursuit of reporting uh, as part of the news gathering process. Um, I was trying to get information about what was happening at Fox and beyond for uh, to, to supervise our edits, uh, to do our edits on fact checking, uh, to inform my discussions on places like the Dispatch Live, Dispatch Podcast, etc. Um, so so we fought it and I was uh, I never appeared. Um, so that is where we are in the, the, the Dominion suit with respect to both of us. Yeah, so onto the substance. So we're just going to talk about this as normal news consumers and as veterans of Fox News. And this has nothing to do with uh, anything having to do with, you know, our subpoenas or anything like that. I got to say, I was of mixed emotions about this whole thing. On the one hand, I, I don't have enough hands. But if I were an octopus, one hand would be, I really feel weirdly vindicated um by a lot of this you know as you've heard my spiel listeners or viewers have heard my spiel a million times my big p for the last eight years now has been this tendency of people on the right to say um things that they do not believe to be true and uh and that's really what this story is kind of about right and so i kind of feel like see i told you so um i also feel saddened because I think there are a lot of people on the news side at Fox who yeah. whose reputations are unavoidably and 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 to some extent I have to say deservedly tarnished by all of this kind of stuff. 
Um, and I also just have, there's also a certain level of, as I was saying on CNN tonight, is like, I'm not surprised by any of this, but there is something shocking in seeing basically Rupert Murdoch admit it in black letters on the page and just simply say, yeah, we were trying to straddle the line between being journalistically truthful and giving the audience the bullshit that they wanted to hear. And whenever they were tested, right, whenever where it became a choice between doing the right thing, like, you know, incent of a woman, I've been at the crossroads and I never made the right decision because it's too damn hard. Every single time they're given the choice, doing the right thing and sticking to it or caving into the demands of their audience and their business model each and every time, at least according to the Dominion filing, and we don't know what the answers to all these accusations are, um, they went the other way. And it's yeah. just shocking to see him admit it. So that's sort of my big first take. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Shocking. Uh, that 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 was when the, the first of these filings dropped, I think it was a, a little bit of the week, more than a week ago, maybe the, 20, the, the 16th or the 17th. Um, and I first started reading the excerpts that people were tweeting about it. I didn't have my hands on the filing at the time. Um, yeah, shocked is I think the the right way to describe it. And, and it was less that the the information was particularly surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a certain way, I, I was sad because I felt naive because I, you know, I had been pushing, you had been pushing, we've been pushing internally to affect some changes at Fox. And I think we were never under the illusion that we were powerful enough to to do it on our own. But we thought those kind of nudges might be helpful. Um, and I guess reading the the excerpts of that first filing made me think it was all it, like that was never going to happen. Like we were totally like, naive to even believe that like silly. Right. Trying to like move a piano by blowing with a straw. I mean, there's right. like no, right. no effect whatsoever. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, we had people, I think there were well-meaning people who who believed what they said when when they talked to us about it, who who said, um, you know, the the, the tide's gonna turn, the the news division is gonna take over, they're gonna get serious again one of these days. And, you know, I'm just speaking for myself, sometimes those were pretty convincing arguments. And as I say, I think the people who, who made them made them in good faith and 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 mostly meant them. Um, and they were persuasive um, in some respects. And reading that was just sort of uh, shocking to, to learn that that was never going to happen. But I, but I I am blown away both by that filing and then the 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 new filing that was out um yesterday i guess it was last night at the extent to which they don't like there's there's no real guile here about what they were up to they want to please the audience um that's what drives their dollars so they will do almost whatever it takes to keep that audience happy and we learned all sorts of details about i forget what there was some orwellian name the brand protection unit yeah. that chimed in to the editorial leadership and told them oh this is going to make our viewers really angry there was this sort of constant refrain um in the depositions from senior fox leaders and in the things that that we read in these filings that they need to quote unquote respect the viewers but respect the viewers or respect the audience doesn't mean what I think most people in journalism 
mean when they would say something like that. It doesn't mean, you know, respect the audience, tell them the truth, the, do your job, do journalism. It basically meant give them what they want. And it's set up, I had a very smart uh, person who's been following this case closely, uh, I talked to today, who, who, who talked to me about how this kind of inverts the entire news process or, or news organization, such that Fox runs sort of the opposite of the way a news organization should run. At Fox, the executives are afraid of the hosts, and the hosts are afraid of the audience. And the result is you have these primetime hosts who just spill bullshit and did so obviously knowingly in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I started to work on it. As you know, I never do this or almost never do this. Started to work on a G file about this today. And, you know, 90 minutes in, I was like at 1800 words and I hadn't even gotten to the stuff I wanted to say it um, because it's just so there's so much to be said. Um, even if I scrub out all the, I told you so stuff. And I think part of it is like you, you know, what's the Chinese expression, you know, um, about riding a tiger. It's like, you have to, you know, you can't get off the tiger because then the tiger will eat you. Fox created the Fox audience of, 2020 was not the Fox audience of 2010. They had been, you know, radicalized at the margins by some of the Fox hosts and all that kind of stuff, but not really, you know, you could keep those guys in check. Um, but it was really the, 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 the final years of Obama and then the Trump administration that just took off all the guardrails, took off all the, the, the breaks. And you saw people, you saw the audience become a different audience and um and it was a you know created by these guys and and then they were like you know this is the problem when you create monsters is that monsters are hard to like control anymore and i think that's sort of how you got to this place this respect the brand is really sort of fear the beast right and um uh and what is so I keep thinking back to this back in those early days when you and I were in um long before we the dispatch was, you know, even an idea. Um, I remember saying to Charles Krauthammer and to you and all these other people, look, I remember saying it to Bill Bennett on his radio show, you know, this thing is going to end in tears no matter what. Yeah. So you might as well do the right thing. And the takeaway lesson from so many people was. Because you read Tucker, he says Tucker just in the in the in the filing, he says you know Trump destroys things. That's the problem with Trump. Trump is going to destroy all of this. He's going to ruin all this. Trump, you know, he has contempt for Trump. All of these guys have contempt for Trump or Trump fans or Trump enablers and all this kind of stuff, but they can't say it on TV. And the takeaway from all these people, starting with Tucker, but you know, I mean, maybe even starting with Susan Scott, because man, what a quizzling she is. Um, is this thing's going to end in tears no matter what? So let's at least make a buck. Yeah. And it's gross to me, you know, and it really, you know, I can get worked up about it, but I'll try not to. Well, I think it's also important. I mean, I agree with that. It's also important to recognize sometimes, I mean, I, I think just the plain reading of the the documents and the things that are, are in the documents, as I say, was stunning and 
gives tremendous insight into what's been happening at, at Fox, at least Fox primetime over the past several years. But there are also things I think that don't come out of the black and white on the page. Um, but if you know a little bit about Fox or spent some time at Fox, really do stand out. One of the things, and I know that these are these are the things that have kind of hit hard inside of Fox on the news side. Um, one of the, the revelations uh, was that Dominion got its hands on a text thread between Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram. And on the text thread, these three are communicating with one another and sharing, you know, sort of trading stories. And this is when Tucker suggests that Jackie Heinrich, who's a really terrific reporter, straight news reporter at Fox, who had done some fact checking on, I think, Hannity and Lou Dobbs, Tucker suggests that she really needs to be fired for having done that. Um, there are all sorts of, of revelations in the substance of what they said. But to me, the most interesting revelation about that text chain is that such a text chain existed at all. Yeah, because they because hate each other. That's the Hannity and Tucker yeah. can't stand each other. Yeah. And the fact, I think, certainly talking to some people inside of Fox, the fact that they were texting to one another about this suggests just how important this moment was yeah. for people at Fox, particularly for, for Hannity and, and Tucker and Laura, the primetime folks. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get to a couple questions from viewers and then we're going to switch gears. But, um, my favorite thing about the and, and again, people should keep in mind it's very difficult to, to 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 prove malice. It is not a slam dunk that Dominion is going to win this. Whether I think they should or not, just legally, it's a it's a steep hill, and we don't know what we don't know about the responses to some of yep. these these things are. So, with all that said, I do love Dominion uh, the the Fox claim that. The real problem or one of the real problems with the Dominion suit is that Dominion is just being greedy. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. this whole thing is like about how Fox yeah. was greedy, you know, and totally. like, you know, well, and how um, about how about the, the how about the, the Fox claim that Dominion is cherry picking words, taking them out of context and presenting them dishonestly? I know it's, it's just like, it's, really <laughs> <laughs> if that were objectionable. What would you have on air between eight and eleven? <laughs> that kettle's all black and stuff. <laughs> um, all right, very quickly. I don't know if I can get to all of these, but uh, our friend John Daly asks uh, if Charles Krauthammer were still alive, do you think he would have left or been sidelined by Fox um, by now? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I always sort of hate to to speculate about about these things. I don't think Charles was happy about what was happening at Fox um, before he passed away. And I think he would have been totally disgusted as sort of any right minding truth seeking person was about what was happening at Fox. Yeah. I think because Charles was human and he enjoyed being on Fox and he loved Brooke bear and he loved being on special report. I think Charles might've bent a little bit to the audience, but he would never have broken. And eventually he would have been sidelined or quit. Um, I just, I, the timeline who knows? But I think that's what would have happened. Um, uh, what are the uh, Ed class asks? What are the odds? This is a turning point for the GOP re-Trumpism. I will just say very quickly. I wish it were otherwise, but I, I think the effects of this, even if Fox straight up loses, um, 
barring Rupert doing something like he did in the phone tapping scandal and just make a sweeping change um, to sort of switch gears. I, I, I suspect that this will be less of a profound moment than it should be on the right. The right-wing media I've been looking around has not been obsessed or covering this very extensively. No. And, you know, the like the Newsbuster guys who all, uh, Media Research Center guys, who insist all the time that they're straight up media critics and they call it like they see it just basically ignored this entirely. That would not be their position if this had happened at CNN or MSNBC. Um, and Fox isn't covering it just straight up as a matter of corporate policy. Howie Kurtz explained it the other day on Sunday, they're not covering it. And we know from all sorts of things with Trump, if it doesn't appear in Trump media or Trump friendly media, this is millions of people don't even hear about it, or if they do hear about it, they immediately dismiss it because the people they trust haven't given it um, any any credit. Yeah, I, I think I, I guess I, I share your skepticism on that. The the one caveat I, I would offer is that you know if if you look at the scholarship on um, con artists um, and their marks the people most likely to recognize that they've been marks in a con are people who come to that realization because they've been presented with information that they then ingest and they determine for themselves that mm -hmm. they've been conned. If you have other people telling them that they've been conned, the strong inclination is to just, just to dismiss that and say, you don't understand. There's some possibility that at least parts of this, if it does in fact seep through, could serve as that source of information. Um, you know, you have Suzanne Scott being quoted herself talking about the need to serve the audience. Uh, you have Rupert Murdoch saying uh, the things that he has said about, um, uh, you know, at, at the beginning it's of his red, deposition. It's not red, it's not blue, it's green. Yeah. Yeah, at the beginning of his deposition, I mean, Murdoch, Murdoch talks about, well, I don't know where it is in his deposition, at the beginning of the filing, they've got Murdoch talking about how he knew sort of instantly had confidence in the Arizona call on election night. He knew very quickly that the election hadn't been stolen. And I think you get the sense from reading the document that Murdoch sort of presented this as a as a badge of honor. Um, like I, we were telling the truth. We did the Arizona call. We knew. And I think and then they fired Chris Starwald, our colleague for it. They fired Chris Starwald. But they they Dominion attorneys, I think, very skillfully turned that and said, well, if you knew at that point, that all this election fraud stuff was nonsense. Why did we see what we saw for the subsequent several months? It's a very simple point, but I think a, a pretty devastating one. There's, I guess, there's some chance that that people will that that will sort of filter into the Fox viewing audience, and they will say, ah, "I can't, I can't trust anything these guys say." It's it's hard for me to imagine that anybody who's um, you know, who's open-minded and there are Fox viewers who are, who are open-minded and, and want real information could read this and say, I'm going to invest my trust in say Tucker Carlson again, or Sean Hannity again. All right. Um, so let's bring in our colleagues, uh, Kevin Williamson and David Drucker. Um, obviously this is not the last you heard about this stuff from us, but we didn't want to like drag these guys into all this stuff because we have work carrying water on the list. And plus we just couldn't count on Kevin not to curse. Um, so uh, with that, why don't we switch to, uh, uh, let's 
just some straight up punditry for for the time being. Jeremy, um, could I ask, could I ask you a Fox News question before we go on? Yes. Just one thing that that, that I've I've heard talking to people about this is um, that for the Murdoch family, they can live financially without Fox News. If you look at the overall universe of of, of where their money comes from and, and where they're invested, but socially it's very hard to live with, particularly for the second generation. You know, the the first Rupert Murdochs. Do you think there's a sense that in what Rupert was saying, they're looking to um, cut themselves loose? I don't know. I mean, uh, what's Lachlan's brother's name? Um, James. I forget. I'm James. Sorry. Yeah, James. That, I mean, James lost that internal battle because he wanted to go a different way. Uh, it's possible. I mean, I, 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 I'm very skeptical that 92 year olds are really capable of profound change, um, mm. and admitting error. <laughs> um, so, uh, I don't know at the same time, you know, Rupert, as I was talking about with the phone tapping scandal and, in, in, you know, the UK, when he closed down his father's founding newspaper of the Murdoch empire, the day it stopped, stopped making money, he can make really ruthless, fast decisions. That's one of the few things in succession that I think is very on point about Rupert is when he feels like he needs to, when he's cornered, he gets very unemotional about things. And I suspect that you can't fire a lot of these people when they're under the, the, the sword of this lawsuit, but like, there's no way Susan Scott, you know, is, is a long-term prospect for Fox after all of this. And I, what I wonder about, and I just don't know enough is if they lose this thing, even if it, the, the, the fine is $1 or whatever, if they start losing viewers or anything, are there going to be shareholder lawsuits? Um, you know, they got a member of the board saying as a fiduciary member matter, Fox is doing the wrong thing. I mean, like you could see some institutional investors saying, what the hell? I, I just don't know. You know? Yeah. I do think it's worth just to put it in perspective. I mean, the amount of money Fox makes, this was part of Paul Ryan's deposition, makes a disproportionate amount of money. Fox News makes a disproportionate amount of money for Fox Corp, given its size. Um, but if you look at the overall earnings and you imagine, so Dominion is suing for $1.6 billion, I think very few people think they would get that um, if they get half half of that. That is something that Fox can weather um, financially. I mean, obviously it would be a, it would be a hit, but there's, there's virtually no prospect that anything like this, even in a in a bad, embarrassing defeat for Fox, would render it, um, you know, bankrupt or in. Yeah, know, that's the irony, though, is that that if Fox loses this even at a third of the damages, that probably spells the end of OAN and Newsmax, because they cannot afford a tenth of the damages, and a loss for Fox means. And which is the irony here is that Fox could actually do the right thing, and throw those guys under the bus, but they're still in that same predicament. They think they're in the still in the same predicament they were in 2020, that they'll lose everything if they if if they give an inch on this stuff. All right. Obviously, this subject will never come up again because we've settled all of the relevant questions and issues. Um, let's move towards uh, the GOP primary and what it looks like right now. We got CPAC coming up this weekend. I know no one here can, can contain their excitement about that. Um, 
and we have Ron DeSantis coming out with a book. Um, David, what do things look like to you right now? Well, I still think we're in the same place we've been for a couple of months. We've got Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis commanding the field. One's in, one's not in yet. Uh, we still don't know for sure that DeSantis is going to run, although I was having conversations today, as I do every day for the dispatch. And everybody tells me uh, for Ron DeSantis, it's full steam ahead toward a presidential bid, that this thing is in development, continues to develop further and further every day that goes by, and that he will get in. And so I think you look at the data and you look at where the Republican primary voter is at this point in the Trump era, and most of them, at least the ones that we can count on to show up in the early caucuses and primaries, are in one of two places. One place is they love Trump. They think he won in 2020. Maybe he didn't win, but it wasn't his fault because he got jobbed. And they don't care if they can't have eight years of a Republican president. They want another four of Trump. And then the other is the group that is very grateful for Trump, wish he would have won in 2020, kind of acknowledges that he didn't, um, but likes Ron DeSantis because they think he's a more effective version of Trump, a better culture warrior, gets things done, doesn't get distracted. And I've talked to a lot of voters about this. There are a lot of voters that are looking at other Republican candidates, uh, DeSantis in particular, who I have to say in these early primary states is eliciting a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, the activists waiting for DeSantis, um, I mean, they can barely contain themselves and they are waiting. I mean, they'll take the measure of him, but they're not signing on with anybody else. They're just waiting for the guy. Uh, but these are people that that say and, and told me in conversations, listen, the problem with Trump is that the media will never give him a fair shake and the Democrats will always be particularly unfair to him, even more so than to other Republicans. So he just can't win. And it's not really his fault, but that's just the reality. And we need somebody who can win. And Ron DeSantis, they look at him in Florida and they say, there's a guy that can win. And so that's where most of the Republican voters are. Now, there are others that are looking around a little bit more that are interested in some different candidates or at least at least kind of gauging, you know, t t taking a look at everybody, shopping a little bit more, uh, a little bit more to, to see what's what. Is Ron DeSantis really all that or is he not cut out yet for prime time? Um, but we're going to have to see more of them get into the race um, or at least somebody get into the race that proves that there's room for more than just Governor DeSantis and former President Trump. Obviously, Nikki Haley is in and she's doing OK. But every Republican I talk to in our business thinks it's pretty suspicious that she hasn't released her initial fundraising. You know, normally a new candidate gets in and they love to tell you in the first 24 hours I raised, you know, $750,000, $1.2 million, $2 million. She's been very quiet about it. Uh, her rollout's been decent. Uh, her The crowds that she received in New Hampshire and, and Iowa, uh, plus her rollout in South Carolina was, was fine. The optics were great. Um, but we haven't seen too much more from her, although she continues to do a lot of interviews and will be on the circuit. So we will see, but no material changes from where we've been the past couple of months. Um, if I could just stay on Drucker for just two seconds here. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, that's how oh, say yeah. That. He <laughs> announced. Um is that a thing? Have you talked to a single voter who knows who he is? I mean, well, dispatch contributor Vivek Ramaswamy. 
So I, I would. You wrote a piece for us. Yeah. Yeah. More more shameless plugs, but no joke here. Uh, Andrew Egger, who helms Dispatch Politics for us, interviewed uh, Mr. Ramaswamy the other day. It's in Monday's edition of the newsletter. It's a great interview, and you get a little insight into him. I am supposed to meet with him this week while he's in town in Washington for CPAC. So I'll get a chance to see what I think of him. Uh, In fairness to Mr. Ramaswamy, I have not been on the road since he's announced to talk to voters to see what they think. Um, I That's the only uh, reason you haven't heard from large numbers of voters. (laughs) Yes. Listen, (laughs) he's got a lot of money. He's got a great success story, an immigrant success story at that, meaning his parents. He's obviously eligible to run for president and be president. Uh, I'm just always skeptical. You know, we may not want an 87-year-old president, which is very real in today's world, apparently. But I don't know if a 37-year-old is the answer uh, to everyone's prayers. And he's running so far, and this may change, but so far he's running a very niche candidacy, right? A niche campaign. He's talking a lot about his opposition to wokeism. He is talking some about China, but a lot of this is based in the cultural concern, particularly on the right, about you know this overwhelming leftist takeover of society um, and, and everything that goes along with it. It's a message that Republican primary voters are going to listen to and be very interested in. Republican primary voters also have a soft spot for young Republicans. Oh, look, we have somebody who's young. We have somebody who's not white. They love those guys and gals. Um, but, you know, let's see if Mr. Ramaswamy has uh, some traction. Is he going to raise money? Is he going to start popping in some of these polls? And is, is he going to show some issue and political depth um, and not simply be the guy that everybody raves about but never goes anywhere. I'm thinking of, you know, really dynamic candidates, at least at the time, like Andrew Yang. Um, even like look back at, at 2016 for the Republicans, Ben Carson, a very accomplished neurosurgeon, a hero to many. He had his moments and, and he did a little bit more than just pop and disappear. Uh, but there was never a sense that he was really going to be president. Um, Republican voters were were looking elsewhere at different times. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and finally, of course, Donald Trump. So let's see. You know, there's always room to prove naysayers and skeptics wrong. I'm a, I, I hate certainty in politics, so I, I don't want to rule anybody out. But I, I wouldn't look at him right off the bat and call him a major candidate. I'd call him an interesting candidate. One side note, he does have a, a small team of pros uh, around him. Also, a few others that I question, but Rex Alsace is, is no slouch. Gail Gitcho, uh, senior communications advisor, no slouch. Um, all capable people. So let's see. I'm calling it now. Haley Ramaswamy 2024. <laughs> all right. Um, you know, I, re- I reviewed his I reviewed his book a couple of years ago when it came out, which I guess makes me as much of a Vivek Ramaswamy expert as anybody. And uh, I can't say my phone's been ringing off the hook with, with questions. <laughs> so kevin how do you see things shaping up right now well i mean we haven't talked about marianne williamson at all i i know and, uh, i was i was waiting for you to bring her up cousin sister uh aunt actually um, <laughs> no there's 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 a rumor that that she's actually my aunt and i started that rumor but it's a, it's a good one so uh <laughs> keep that out there um we are close to fake news did you not hear the first 20 minutes of this discussion <laughs> we don't I did, stuff and, up. And people, what i what i know people are saying 
People are saying, <laughs> uh, you know, Sean Hannity's got a private jet, and I fly on points, so uh, maybe I'll dip a toe into fake news. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. But um, I don't think I have uh, very much to add to uh, to to Drucker's uh, analysis. There, it's still very much to me feels like a Trump DeSantis race in the uh, Republican side of things. I would like to see Nikki Haley uh, thrive and and um, and be a real uh, option in uh in the primaries but it's it's awfully early and it's um there's a there's a lot of um a lot of uh pancakes to be eaten in new hampshire diners between uh now and the time anything real is going on yeah so so steve you spent a lot a lot like drucker you spent a lot of time in new hampshire and iowa some of it reporting and um uh there's this thing that you hear all the time. I hear it from people. You read it. I mean, it's not like it's a um, there's some sort of like rumor mill kind of thing. It's like openly discussed that DeSantis has very low EQ. He can't work a room. He has eye contact problems. He has trouble picking up on people's tells and emotional signals and all that kind of stuff. How true that is, I don't necessarily. I, I think it's true. I just don't know how true it is or how much it matters. The guy did win decisively twice for governor and he ran for Congress a bunch of times. So he's got to be able to do some of that stuff. But if that's the case, do you, let's say, let's say it's the case. What does that do to his chances to run in the living rooms and diners of, of New Hampshire and Iowa? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's true. Uh, I've talked to people who've worked closely with him in the past, and they all say it's true. And some of them are supporters of Ron DeSantis. They'd like to see him as the next president. And they will say it like this is his this is his problem. I think I mean, David's actually working. Sh should we let people behind the curtain uh, a little bit? David's working on a piece as sort of a long term, bigger piece about the way that campaigns are changing. Um 2024 is going to be different than 2020. It's going to be different than 2016, different than 2012. And dramatically so, I think. Um, if you look at the the way, there was a terrific piece. I think we may have talked about it um, here before by a guy named David Friedlander in New York Magazine. And he basically said, like, Republicans are just choosing not to engage the media anymore, the mainstream media. They don't need to. They've got their own channels. They can be their own distribution channels. Um, they've got their own podcasts. They have their own social media. They can get their message out and it will be picked up if they frame it themselves on their own terms. It will be picked up by the mainstream media and they don't have to subject themselves to the kinds of questioning that most people, uh, including most Republicans, have in the past. The question is whether that what does that mean for retail politics? Um, you know, it wasn't really a Republican primary in 2020. So the last time that we saw this on the Republican side in the early states was 2016. And tr I think Trump started that trend. He didn't do a lot of retail politicking. He didn't spend a lot of time in the living rooms and doing the kind of glad handing. And, and I remember at the time talking to people who were responsible for guiding candidates to victory in Iowa and New Hampshire for years saying, oh, he's he's going to he's going to be dead here. This is never going to work. We we expect different from our candidates. We want them in, in the living rooms. And the old joke is, you know, I, I, I never make a decision on a presidential candidate until I've shaken their hand or I've had the opportunity to talk to them personally. And Trump didn't really play that game. 
he was sort of bigger than that. He was above that. He used his own star power to kind of speak nationally, even when he was in these these early states. And I think what we're seeing from the DeSantis team early is that they've learned that lesson from Trump in 2016, and they're building on it now. And he's unlikely to make himself, I think, available to a lot of mainstream reporters. Um, I don't think he's going to do the kinds of, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine him doing the kinds of, you know, personal, softer pieces that were staples of, you know, Good Morning America, the Today Show, where you spend time with the candidate, you spend a time, ton of time with his wife. I mean, he'll probably do some of that, but I don't think that they will seek those out in the way that we've seen in, in years past. So the, to answer your question directly, I don't think he's likely to be as punished if he foregoes that kind of retail politicking in 2024 as he would have been in 2012. Anybody disagree with that? You know, for years, I mean, I, I've been writing this at least since George W. Bush was, was president. Um, I've never understood why Republicans talk to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the the old networks, the Associated Press, those sorts of things. I like the idea of gatekeepers. I like having gatekeepers out there. But if I were a Republican who was really trying to, you know, stay in control of my own message and stuff, I think Steve's absolutely right. There's just so many ways to go around that now. I just don't see what the upside is for them. I mean, I suppose that if you're a struggling primary candidate and you're just taking any sort of uh, any help you can get and any press you can find. But if you are the Republican nominee or you're a, a sitting Republican president, yeah, I think that it's... um um, almost certainly in their interest just to pretend like they don't exist. Um, they're going to cover you. They can't not cover you. If you're going to, you know, be uh, pressing for your X, Y, and Z, you know, policy program, they're going to cover it. And you're probably not going to get any worse coverage for not talking to them than you would for talking to them. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're we're definitely at the point where um, that's going to be just the, the new kind of, um, I think, normal practice, especially, you know, kind of post-2016. Yeah, so on that point real quickly, and I'll throw it to Drucker, but... Um... I remember when George W. Bush had a strategy of dealing both as president and as a candidate of going over the heads of the national media and giving tons of interviews to local news stations. Yeah. And the local news stations would be so grateful for the interview that the questions wouldn't be as hard hitting. Every now and then, somebody smart would say, hey, this is the way I can get national attention by actually asking really tough questions. But that guy questions, in Denver, he did it to everybody. Remember? <laughs> Do you know his name, Drucker? He was good. Yeah, yeah and, he's um, good. And and moreover, you know, this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand is like if you give the mainstream media outlets the cold shoulder for a while, the same phenomenon happens where they're like so grateful to get the interview and want to get another one that they kind of blow the opportunity to really kind of blow you up. So I, I agree with that. I agree with it generally. Um, I'm just a little more skeptical that DeSantis, who may be, a, I mean, you guys may be right that he's sufficiently a celebrity with the base, the primary voters, that he is a substitute for Trump in that sense, because that was Trump using his celebrity as a substitute for actually having to deal with the unwashed. I don't think that DeSantis has anything like the sort of like celebrity buzz 
that um, Trump does. And I'm, so I'm not I'm not confident that the strategy will work, but it may be the smartest thing for him to do. And Trump was it was a real celebrity. He wasn't, you know, wasn't a political celebrity or a cable news right. celebrity. I think that's a, that's a huge, uh, huge difference. But that kind of model of not having to do the traditional kind of, you know, 1950s through 1990s media stuff may actually counteract some of that EQ stuff you're talking about with DeSantis, who right. can run you know, a campaign in which he does a pretty good impersonation of a normal human being in a very controlled environment rather than doing a lot of spontaneous stuff with, um, you know, unexpected questions and interactions. Yeah, look, if if it's true, and I think it is, that he, that he's not good in those environments. I mean, we've all been around politicians who are very good retail politicians. I think John Thune is among the best. You see John Thune work a room of 300 people. He's wherever he is in the room, he's at the center of the room. And he has just this sort of ease and, and grace when he's dealing with constituents. He's able to talk their language. He knows what he's talking about. You know a pro in that environment. If that doesn't matter anymore, or if if you have, and if you have a candidate you're advising who's not only not good at it, but is bad at it with C-SPAN cameras on the rope line and what have you, it would be political malpractice to put that candidate in that environment when you when you have all of these other distribution channels uh, available to you. And while I agree with both of you that, I mean, certainly DeSantis does not have Trump's, you know, national name ID or network television primetime host uh celebrity status among the people who are likely to decide the republican primary as david suggests he really is something of a celebrity i mean they love the guy they want to see him in person and the fact that he's waiting you know he's got trips coming up i think to iowa and and elsewhere the fact that he's waited, that other candidates have gone first when he finally lands, you know, it's going to be he's going to have a full uh, get get the full treatment, I think. I wish somebody would be like the, the, the full dick army, you know, and show up smoking a cigarette and referring to the press as you bastards. Um, that was going to be a mild scene. Look, look, I think one thing to remember about voters is they're a little bit more sophisticated than sometimes we give them credit for. And I, I include me in the we. Um I sat down with Chris Christie recently, and he, he told me a, a really funny story, but a really poignant story, I thought. He, um, you know, in 2016, he was a candidate. He, he flamed out in New Hampshire, but he was telling me that his his wife one day, Mary Pat, was going door to door at some neighbor neighborhood in New Hampshire and uh, knocks on one particular door. And the woman uh, says, oh, no, I know who you are. You're, you're Governor Christie's wife. Come in. And so she goes in and, and the voters telling um, you know, then the, the, I think he was still governor, right? So then the first lady of New Jersey is telling Mary Pat, your husband's amazing. He's so smart. He's so, I mean, she ticked off this half a dozen things of why she loved Chris Christie. And so Mary Pat says, so great. So we can count on your vote then. Oh, she's like, oh no, honey, I'm voting for Donald Trump, but I really hope he makes your husband the attorney general. <laughs> and so my, and Christy was, you know, telling me that story to just talk about how complicated campaigns can be, but also how sophisticated and nuanced voters can be. And also My how terribly is, bitter he was, but that's a different issue. <laughs> well, you know, he look, he's uh, more competitive or yes, all yeah. of that, all of that. But but I think the, the thing to remember is voters have different standards for different politicians. 
Right. So they allowed Trump to be a louse because he was a famous person and everybody knows their louses. Right. I mean, I remember covering Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2003 when he was running for governor in the recall. And the allegations had just come out that he had groped somebody, which years later we found out, you know, good chance it was true. And um, I, I'm talking to a voter and I said, are you concerned about these latest revelations? And uh, a female voter tells me, I remember we were in Central California somewhere. I mean, he's a movie star. They all do stuff like that. Uh, but that's a standard they were willing to apply to a famous person in the entertainment industry. I think one of the reasons why Marco Rubio in 2016 when he really went after Trump in a Trumpy way, why it fell flat with Republican voters was, you're not supposed to be that guy. That's not who you are. Now, we may not be voting for you for all sorts of reasons, but we're certainly not going to vote for you for acting like Trump, because it's okay if he does it, but it's not okay if you do it, which gets us around to saying, DeSantis may be able to do a lot of the things that Trump did, but he may not be able to do everything Trump did. He may not just be able to swoop in and swoop out on a rally, but he may not have to sit in the living room 50 times. It may be somewhere in the middle. Um, Trump, who actually loves talking to the media that doesn't like him because he likes the challenge and he likes fighting with the media, and he loves us more than any president I've ever seen, ironically, DeSantis pretty authentically does not like the media and thinks they give him a raw deal and loves to fight with them. But he may find it advantageous to talk to certain local media. And I already see signs that... His allies are happy to talk to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because that's where the donors are. They read those papers. And sometimes you want to go to the legacy media brands, so-called, because you want to reach some of their readers. And so this thing may not shake out quite as simply as we think. All right. So um, I'm going to call an audible. You know, we wanted to talk about a bunch of different things, but we're we're in the pundit zone and all that. Um, first of all, we're we're. I'll, I'll do it the other way around. There's all this talk about the the loyalty pledge, right? You can't be in the debates unless you promise to endorse the eventual nominee. Trump says it depends, right? About this question about whether you endorse the nominee. I generally think that that's just him. It, it, Trump is on a thousand and one different issues and occasions as always takes the position that allows him to keep his options open, right? He just doesn't like to commit to things. At the same time, strategically, there, there's one theory that this is the way the Republican Party keeps Trump out of the debates. There's another theory that this is Trump's way of not having to do the debates. Which one do you think is more right? Stephen? The latter. I mean, Trump has already basically said he's not going to debate. He's going to do what he wants to do, as you point out. It could be that he's just keeping his options open. I think that, the, the I mean, look, to the extent that there's any strategy baked into to Trump's thinking about this, he's already extracted the value from debates that he could. And I think you know, part, part of what he's struggling with in these early days of you know, the 2024 Republican primary, which really starts in, I mean, it's it's taking place sort of under the radar now, but I mean, there are going to be debates this summer, is that people are tired of the guy. And if I were advising Trump, I would say, 
don't do the debates because you're not that good at them. The novelty that you brought to the debates in 2016 has worn off years ago. And you risk that the things that people don't like about you will be on display on a national audience on a regular basis. So I would imagine that Trump, when he talks about not wanting to participate in the debates, he actually means it. He's open to it. He thinks he's a front runner, thinks there's low um, likelihood that it that it increases his chances of getting the nomination. The only question is, you know, the guy so loves attention. Can he actually sit him out? What he should do is live tweet them. You know, if, if Trump, <laughs> I'm not kidding, actually, if Trump live announces, I'm going to be back, I'm going to skip the debates, but I'm going to go back to Twitter. I'm going to live tweet my responses to debates. Trump would get more coverage out of that than debates are going to get. And he'll get more uh, interaction and exposure out of it than the debates are going to get. There goes Williamson again, giving good advice to the Trump campaign. I hate, if, I hate doing yeah. that, but um, bring on the yeah, crisis. No, You're a slave I, I to the truth. One, I don't know which one to pick, Jonah, but I... I I just find the whole loyalty pledge thing so ridiculous because it's only designed with one person in mind, and that's Donald Trump, who wouldn't keep the loyalty pledge if he signed it, if he didn't want to. And every other Republican running for president is going to support whoever the nominee is, regardless of a loyalty pledge. And so the whole exercise to me is so semantical. I suppose they could drag him into church and make him make a vow in front of his friends and family. <laughs> he wouldn't keep that either. <laughs> that, that yeah, that was that was that was the subtext there. Thanks, for, <laughs> oh, thanks for making it the text. Oh man! All right. Um, Never explain the joke, man. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, I've been very look. I, I just got back from the Caribbean. I'm I'm just still got that you know sort of that on vacation. Yeah, I'm on vibe. Yeah, I'm on vibe. Don't worry, be happy thing. But um, uh, our our colleague Nick Katagia wrote a little bit about this today, and Constance Mat Constance Constance Matia um, asks, "Is CPAC on the wane?" Um, read in the Washington Post today that sales are light. DeSantis isn't showing up, and uh, and Schlapp has his uh, his issues. I'm paraphrasing her question. Um, uh, are we at, have, have we passed peak CPAC? Um, I mean, Nikki Haley has a 1245 PM time slot going into a Laura Trump speech. And the keynoters are Carrie Lake and some other people like Carrie Lake. I can't remember who else, um, does CPAC matter much anymore i'm not saying it doesn't matter but does it matter much anymore david i don't well as long as trump is a dominant figure in the republican party and the and whatever qualifies as the conservative movement these days then i think it matters less but for this reason um and it was based on some conversations i had today with with different republicans he is so dominant that there are diminishing returns for anybody to show up and then have to deal with losing the straw poll and dealing with the negative press or maybe not getting as big of a reception or as good of a time slot as Trump gets. 
Right. So it, it, it used to be that CPAC was a place where Republicans across the spectrum, as long as they were, were within the broad circle of the party, could go and be cheered and appreciated for one reason or another. But these days, the party can be so uh, factionalized and divided over over things having to do with Trump that a lot of Republicans will look at it and say, is it, is it, am I going to, is it a net gain for me and my political aims? And I think it's just become so Trump centric and the party so factionalized at the moment that a lot of Republicans that, that in years past always went just don't see, it's just not worth their time. And there are plenty of other places for them to go and things for them to do to be appreciated. Yeah, I mean, anybody else? Nick's, yeah, Nick, Nick's newsletter tonight is great. If you haven't read it, um, read it. That's true, uh, literally every weekday. Um, and he, he points out that most people are actually going. Most of the people that you would expect to go are actually going and giving a speech and doing the glad handing thing. It may, you know, remains to be seen whether um, ticket sales will actually be light. But I, I do think it's it's true. And Nick makes this point. It is a cliche. But it is nonetheless true that if you look at the early days of CPAC, when it was more substantive and it it mattered more in terms of like real conservative movement bona fides rather than just sort of the, the grifter set, it's certainly the case that in the in the past decade, really in the past five years in particular, it is it's it's basically a pay to play operation. Um and and this is sort of behind the scenes stuff that that isn't necessarily obvious to everybody. But you pay to be a sponsor, you pay to get exhi- exhibit space. There's a lot of palm greasing in many other aspects of participation in CPAC. And to the extent that that political insiders know it, I think it makes it less important as an insidery thing than it was. 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 50 years ago. There is. I'll, I'll tell a very short story that I haven't told before um, about CPAC. When I first um, became the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, this is December of 2016, we were signed up as sponsors of the 2017 CPAC. This is February, I think, of 2017. So I've been on the job for a couple months. And it was, for those of you who follow this stuff closely, the CPAC where Matt Schlapp decided somewhat unilaterally to invite Milo Yiannopoulos to be a keynote speaker at CPAC. And Milo was problematic for many, many, many reasons. Um, And when we found out about this at the Weekly Standard, we decided we were no longer going to be a name sponsor. It's 50,000 bucks, no longer going to be a name sponsor. So I went to the powers that be at Media DC, which was the holding company that owns the Washington Examiner and the Weekly Standard. And I said, we just need to get our name off of that. I don't want anything to do with it. That guy's a clown. Most of the other people speaking are clowns. Let's get our name off of it. This is really silly. And the response I got from the leadership at Media DC, this guy named Steve Sparks, who, who David knows, um, said, you can't. You, you can't back out. I said, well, I don't want the Weekly Standard stuff on anything that this Milo Yiannopoulos guy does. And they long back and forth with them, they eventually decided to take our $50,000 and give it to the Weekly Standard or to the Washington Examiner. So they were sort of a double sponsor of this. Um, but before that happened, before we reached that unhappy conclusion, Matchlap called me 
Um, and I wasn't, we were, this was all behind the scenes. I was not making this a big public thing. We weren't doing any grandstanding. I just said, look, this is not what we want to be doing at the weekly standard. We're out. Simple as that. Just take our money away. And Slap called me and he said, look, you know, we'd really like you to, to remain as a, as a sponsor. Can, can you please do this? You know, I don't really love Milo either, but he's fine. And I sort of walked through the, the reasons for objections and on and on. And, and he fought it. And he did not want to pick Milo off of the stage, but there was a sort of increasing public pressure. And then I'm skipping a, a lot of details. Matt calls me and I remember I was in a car on a family vacation in Philadelphia, taking the kids to see the Liberty Bell and Constitution Hall. And I get this call from Matt Schlapp after days and days of, of this back and forth. And he says, I'm just calling to thank you. Okay, what are you calling me to thank you? He said, you know, you guys have really helped us see the light on just how bad Milo was. <laughs> and so we've decided to disinvite him from speaking as a keynote speaker. And of course, in the interim, there had been all of these revelations about Milo's sort of semi-embrace or soft embrace of pedophilia and all this crazy. So it had nothing to do with the fact that the Weekly Standard was quietly <laughs> outside of public view taking this, this stand. It had everything to do with the the public pressure. But that's how CPAC has operated. Matt wants attention. He wants as much media attention and press as he can get. He's willing to do sort of anything unless uh, unless it doesn't pay the bills. Steve, I think there's yeah, probably I, a pretty good chance that Milo's check bounced too. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> probably true. <laughs> Seems likely. Um, you know, Jonah, you've just come back from the Caribbean and uh, CPAC, rather, C-SPAN, whatever I was going to say, what it reminds me of essentially is a nude beach, right? You know, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, but then you get there and like <laughs> all the people you kind of want to be there aren't actually there. And the people you really don't want to be there sort of are. And everyone's older than you expected and they speak German. And um, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a great scene. You know, it's uh, it's not some, you know, 1970s uh, late night HBO movie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not it's not the Cinemax film that you had planned on. Really um, not, yeah, no. I like I, I agree. My position on C and look. So, I mean, it's very hard to follow up on this, but um, what do you say? What so do you, at NR, at NR, our um, former publisher, you know, uh, National Review is one of the founders of uh, founding yeah, entities about CPAC. And we had kind of pulled out of it long ago because of these pay to play things. At the same time, my view on CPAC is always like if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it because you need some sort of thing to get everybody together. I, I would have different organizing principles. I would have a higher filter. Um, Bless you. Excuse me. I would also like, I remember when CPAC, I think it was the same year I spoke at a panel about, uh, why the log cabin Republicans should be allowed to have a booth at CPAC. This is like 15 years ago or something like that. And it was the same year that the same year that they denied the log cabin Republicans a booth, 
they allowed the John Birch Society to come back. And I remember one of the organizers having no idea who the John Birch Society was. And this is one of these things that like, I mean, Kevin and I know this is like, I forgive a lot of people not knowing a lot of things that I am really interested in because I know I'm interested in a niche thing in American life. But if you work for this work for CPAC, you should have heard of the John Birch Society. I mean, like have a passing familiarity with it. And um, but it's sort of like the way we started with the stuff about Fox News is like there are a lot of good people at CPAC. There are a lot of like cornpone weirdos with tricorn hats and, you know, patriotic plumbing systems that they want to sell and all that kind of stuff. And that's all fine. It doesn't really bother me. Um, my problem is, is that it's the, the truest thing Kellyanne Conway had said in her time, um, as, as she left Trump's us. A, well, no, no. In her time as, as a Trump, uh, Trump administration official was when she said it should no longer be called CPAC. It should be called TPAC. And, um, because it's now Trump pack and it is not remotely Reaganite anymore. You know, the, they got Victor Orban to speak last year, and now they're going to have Bolonsaro to speak because they have to always have some critic of, of liberal democratic capitalism now as a keynoter, which is kind of a problem. And, you know, and I'll just say, I, I think it's gone downhill since they named me the conservative journalist of the year in 2011. <laughs> a long time ago. Indeed it was. <laughs> All right, gents, I apologize to all our listeners or viewers. I'm sorry, but Steve is a vicious and cruel taskmaster about us ending on time. Um, he's got clubs to go to. And um, <laughs> you can already hear it in the background. And uh, um, But there will be many more of these. And um, uh, thank you to David Drucker. Thank you to Kevin Williamson, whatever Steve Hayes. And... Um, uh, Please, you know, if you got friends, family, relatives, uh, people you love and respect or who might be open to uh, uh, seeing the error of their ways in whatever way, uh, please let them know about the dispatch and encourage them to become paid members of the dispatch community. Uh, we have great things, even greater things ahead. So with that, thank you all very much for watching, and we'll see you next week. Spader. Waiter.